0: Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. This week as I was preparing, as I was studying, as I was praying over these verses, I said to my wife, we were having lunch together, and I said, you know, I really want to do a a whole sermon series on the second coming of Jesus. To which she said, isn't that what you're doing? Isn't that the point of Revelation? Like, what, what's the difference? And I said, well, yes, it, it, the point of Revelation is to get us to the second coming, but also, no, it's not all about the second coming. The book of Revelation is really about what leads us to the second coming, but the actual second coming of Jesus, as described in the book of Revelation, is one tiny little paragraph. The reason for that is very clear in the Bible. The Bible is explicit about the second coming of Jesus. In the New Testament, Old Testament, it's prophesied. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches on it. Uh, the, The New Testament writers write about it, and they give us a lot of detail about the second coming of Jesus. So that when you get to the book of Revelation and you get to the actual second coming of Christ, there's not much ink that needs to be spilled on what's happening on the second coming because we already know it's basically as if John is saying, you remember that whole second coming thing of Jesus? Here's it, what's happening. Here it is. Boom, that's it. Let's move on. Whereas, if we go back to the Old Testament, that time of Jacob's trouble, that time of testing, the time that you could call the tribulation, that seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, that time of enormous testing of the earth that's going to bring Israel back to her Messiah... That period of seven years, though it's prophesied in the Old Testament, the details and the specificity of what's going on isn't given to us in the Old Testament. And so that's why Revelation is expanding on Old Testament prophecies about that period of Daniel's 70th week, that last period of seven years before Jesus returns. So the Bible is very clear about the second coming. It's also very clear about this tribulation period, about this future seven-year period of time upon which the... The wrath of God will pour out on the world in order that not only will evil finally be destroyed, but Israel will finally be saved, and we're going to look at that, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. Thus far in Revelation, we've seen the details of this seven-year period unfolding. And here, almost at the very end of the book, we finally have the second coming of Christ. We have the return of the King of Kings to rule and to reign. Now, Though I would love to do a whole sermon series on like the Olivet Discourse and on the Old Testament prophecies of the second coming and on the New Testament authors writing about the second coming, we're not going to do a sermon series on it. I trust that later in the history of our church, we will go through a gospel and we'll see the Olivet Discourse. We'll be able to go through it then. So we'll save a lot of those things for the future as a church. But I do want to, in kind of an introduction to this paragraph, I want to give us just those three segments of what the Bible says, Old Testament authors, Jesus himself, and the New Testament authors about the second coming of Jesus. So first of all, the second coming of Christ is not the rapture. So in your mind, if you have a seven-year period that we would maybe call the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year period, the seals, the, uh, the trumpets, the bowls are being pulled out, poured out, all of those different things that we've seen, That seven-year period, the beginning of that seven-year period, according to what you believe the Bible teaches about the rapture, uh, I would hold to the the rapture of the church happening right before that seven-year period begins. It would be called a pre-tribulational rapture. There's other views of that, and we'll talk about this later as we get into the rest of the book of Revelation. But Jesus raptures the church at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. So the rapture of the church really is the beginning of that seven-year period. You can kind of start the clock when the church is raptured. Some people would hold to a mid-trib view, a pre-wrath view, a post-trib view, and people that would hold to a post-trib view of the rapture, meaning post-tribulation, the end of that seven-year period, the church is raptured. They see the rapture and the second coming as one event. Okay, these are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. This is not an area to divide uh, or, or to have any disunity or disfellowship over. But I, I want to tell you right off the bat that the rapture is different than the second coming. The rapture happens at the beginning of this seven-year period. The second coming happens at the end of this seven-year period. What we're going to look at this morning is the second coming of Christ, where Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 4, tells us that Jesus will return from heaven. His feet will land on the Mount of Olives, will split the Mount of Olives in two. At the rapture, the church just disappears. There's no Jesus landing on the Mount of Olives and splitting the Mount in two. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. This is John 14, 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. At the second coming, the saints come with Jesus. They come back with him. So it's not going up to meet him and then returning. That would be a a post-trip view of the rapture, would say that we are raptured to meet Jesus in the air, and then we come back with him. We don't actually get to stay with Jesus in heaven for that period of seven years. We just come back with him as he's coming. The second coming and the rapture are together. At the rapture, Christ meets his saints in the air. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. To take them then to heaven. That's John 14, verses 2 through 3. But at the second coming, he descends with the saints from heaven to stay on the earth. So the rapture is saints going up to meet Jesus, and then they go into heaven. Second coming is Jesus descending from heaven with the saints who are already there to be back on earth. There's not a hint of judgment in any rapture passages in the Bible. And the second coming is filled with judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. So rapture and second coming are clearly in the Bible two different events. And I believe that we could chronologically use the scriptures to understand that the rapture of the church happens, then the seven-year tribulation period happens, then Christ returns at the very end of that seven-year period of trials and testing and tribulation in Daniel's 70th week. The dramatic cosmic signs that precede the second coming of Christ are never mentioned with the rapture. This is the second coming, not the rapture. And the second coming has been prophesied in the Old Testament. More than uh, 100 prophetic passages in the Old Testament were fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus, But over a third of all prophecies in the Bible have to do with the second coming of Jesus. So we have a lot that's been fulfilled, but we have a lot that we're waiting for. So let's do a little jet tour from the Old Testament to Jesus' teaching to the New Testament authors in the epistles, the apostles writing the epistles, what they have to say about the second coming. I don't expect you to turn to these passages. I want to give them to you. You can write them down. You can study them on your own time. Old Testament, number one. Old Testament described the second coming. Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. We're going to look at this later. Jesus rules and reigns over the nations with a rod of iron. That is not happening right now. That has yet to happen. It's going to happen when Jesus comes back, as we're going to see this morning in Revelation 19. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Uh, This is that passage that we often go to during Christmas, right? The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. That's true, and that happens at the beginning with the the first advent of Christ, with Jesus uh, coming to uh, earth as a little baby. But it says that of the increase of his government and the peace that it brings, there will be no end. That hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for that to happen. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. Says he will judge between many peoples, render decisions for the mighty, distant nations. They will then hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom of peace that's yet to come, that is inaugurated at the second coming of Jesus. So that hasn't happened yet. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says similar. Uh, truths about the second coming. Zechariah 14, we're going to go to this in a few weeks. Zechariah 14, verses 4 through 9, describe Jesus descending on the Mount of Olives and then uh, bringing in his kingdom. So the Old Testament was very clear that Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah is going to show up. What wasn't clear was that that showing up was going to happen in two parts in the Old Testament. There's going to be a first advent and a second advent, but by the time Jesus shows up, he describes The first advent is here and now. The second advent is yet to come. I'm not coming to judge, right? He said that in John. I'm not coming to judge. That's for later. And that's why Jesus taught about the second coming. There's going to be another time when I return. And when I return, I'm coming to judge and to bring in a kingdom. So number two in our introduction, this isn't even into the text yet. We'll get there. Don't worry. Number two. So not only number one does the Old Testament prophesy about the second coming. Number two, Jesus himself taught about the second coming. This is Matthew 24 through 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21, which is all called the Olivet Discourse. We're going to look at these in the uh, coming weeks when we talk about the kingdom, because the disciples say, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. Look at the temple. Look at the stones and how beautiful this is. This is going to be our headquarters for the kingdom, right? You are Messiah. This is during the Passion Week. This is Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. The disciples have seen Jesus cleanse the temple on Monday, take over from the religious leaders. Tell them everything that they're supposed to do, curses them, woes upon them. The disciples see that and they go, Well, he's reforming the religion. That's what Messiah is supposed to do. Next, he's going to go destroy Rome. That's what Messiah is supposed to do. And then finally, we get to sit with him in his kingdom. Temple will be his headquarters. We'll hang out here. Look at how beautiful this is the kingdom. We're about to usher in the kingdom, right? And Jesus' answer is, No, actually, this temple is going to be destroyed. And so they ask, Okay, then when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus tells them, When I come again, that's when the kingdom's coming. It's not now, it's when I come again. So, the All of That Discourse describes the second coming of Christ very explicitly. John chapter 14, verses 2 through 3. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'll come back to get you so that you can be with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back in the rapture to take you to home to be with me, and then we're all coming together. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. This is. Jesus before Caiaphas, and he says to Caiaphas while he's on trial, this is Friday morning of the Passion Week, he says to Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and judging you. That's the second coming. I'm coming back to judge. John chapter 5, verse 25 through 29, Jesus says that he has been given authority by the Father to judge the nations, and he will do that when he comes again. So the Old Testament taught about the second coming, the prophesied this second coming, the New Testament taught about it as well. Jesus himself teaches it. Finally, in our introduction here, number three, the New Testament authors, the apostles, taught about the second coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Paul says that we eagerly await the revealing of Jesus. We await his revealing when he comes again. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await him coming back. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, describe the rapture and then being brought to be with Christ forever in heaven, and then he's going to come back and we're going to come with him. Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty-eight. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many; to those who eagerly wait from for him from heaven, he will appear a second time. That's explicit. He's going to appear a second time. James chapter five verses seven through eight. This is the half brother of Jesus writing. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the coming of the Lord is near. He's coming back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus, at his second coming. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus at his second coming first peter chapter 5 verse 4 when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory when he appears when he comes back second peter chapter 3 verse uh, 3 through 4 peter even says there are going to be people that are going to say the second coming isn't going to happen Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. He's not coming back. Peter says, know this, that he will come back. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he does appear, we will be with him and we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Jude chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's coming with his holy ones. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. So the Old Testament prophesied the second coming. Jesus himself taught about the second coming. The New Testament authors and apostles wrote about the second coming. That's why when we get to Revelation... There isn't much ink that needs to be spilled because we already know that it's happening. We just don't know how it's going to occur in all of its different parts. And so John sees this magnificent vision of Christ's return from heaven to earth. We have the privilege this morning of looking at it. So now let's go to our text. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. With that as an introduction and a foundation for understanding the second coming is prophesied. It's going to happen. The question is, how is it going to happen? And then the other question is, who is coming back? And it's very interesting because in this text, though we know who's coming back, his name is never given to us. The name of Jesus is never given to us. Instead, four titles for Jesus that he bears to himself, that he holds as his own, are given to us and they tell us four magnificent promises about our savior in his second coming revelation 19 verse 11 and i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will destroy them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, we come before you this morning and we're stunned at this scene. God, I pray that you would help us to feel what John must have felt when he saw this vision, when finally, at last, everything that he had hoped for, everything he had studied in the Old Testament, everything that he had heard you say when you were on the earth, and everything that not only he had written about in the New Testament, but his other brethren had written about of your second coming... He finally gets to see the reality of, this is happening. Here's how it's happening. Here's when it's happening. God help us to feel what John would have felt. God guard us this morning from remaining unaffected by this passage, one of the most high and holy places in all of Scripture. What you promised that you would do, you're doing. And so we long for that day, just like we sang this morning, just like Luke prayed, we long for that day. And as we long for it, we want to live today in light of that day. We want to live today in light of eternity. We want to live for you and for that day. And Father, this morning we want to see Christ, the returning King, as clearly as we possibly can. So, Father, be pleased to get sin out of our eyes, to get the chaos of this world away from our thinking, to focus our minds and our attention on the text and on Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes right now that we would behold wonderful things from this precious book. Jesus, be our greatest treasure. Beyond anything that this world could offer, be our soul's satisfaction, both now and forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, give us four specific titles that Jesus bears and holds to himself. Four titles. You never see the name Jesus in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. But you see four titles, four representations of who Jesus is. We're going to take them one at a time, and then we're going to look at what that means for us, who Christ is for us right now in heaven, and who he's going to be as he returns to rule and to reign on earth. Number one, Jesus is called the faithful and true. The faithful and true. We sang about this earlier straight from Revelation 19:11 also found earlier in Revelation as well. Verse 11, I saw, this is John, I saw heaven open. This isn't the first time that he's seen heaven open. He saw heaven open in John chapter in Revelation chapter 4. John says revelation was open so that John could go into heaven. But now heaven is being opened so that Jesus can come out and come back. Heaven is opened. And he sees a white horse. This is a symbol of victory. Julius Caesar, when he conquered, uh, as a a Roman Caesar, he rode in victorious to the places that he conquered on a white horse to say, I am king and I have victory over this. You are my conquered people. So Jesus is coming as a conqueror. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. Jesus is called the faithful witness in Revelation 1 verse 5. He's also called the faithful and true witness in Revelation 3, verse 14. This isn't a new title, and it's used of Jesus as he's returning. The one who is sitting on this horse is faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. That is so important. He judges righteously, waging war righteously. No one can say that he's being unfair in this war. He is incapable of judgment by deception or by fraud. His decisions accord perfectly with the reality of what's going on. He judges perfectly. He wages war perfectly. The very first time that Jesus came... Wicked people judged him, but when he comes again, he will judge all wickedness. This is what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus. He says, there is coming a day when every single person will be judged by the king. His eyes, verse 12, are a flame of fire. This also is not new to us. We've seen this in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, dealing with the letter to the church in Thyatira. Jesus has eyes that are a burning fire. That's an illustration, an analogy that's used in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. The flaming torches for eyes, piercing, penetrating laser vision, holy intelligence. Nothing escapes from his sight. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is secret. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, all things are laid bare before him. He sees your thoughts. He's omniscient in your brain. He knows what you're thinking, even right now at this very moment. He knows you better than you know you. His eyes are a flame of fire. Nothing escapes the notice of this warrior. And on his head are many diadems. My translation says diadems. That's the word for a crown. He has many crowns on his head. One crown isn't enough for this king. You remember the Antichrist, the beast? He had a crown, and and he gave crowns to his coalition, to the kings over his coalition. He gave seven crowns to the seven people that were ruling and reigning with him. They all got one crown. Jesus gets all the crowns. He gets every single crown. In his first coming, Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Here, he's wearing multiple crowns, proving that he's Lord over everything. He's taking the crowns back from the Antichrist. He's taking the crowns back from the seven leaders that were with the Antichrist. He's taking them all back, wearing them all, and saying, I'm king over everything. He's faithful and true. The second title given to Jesus here is in verse 12. Not only is Jesus the faithful and the true, but secondly, he has a name written which no one knows but himself. This is title number two. He has a name that's written which nobody knows but but himself, so on the one hand, it's kind of pointless to speculate what the name is, because we're told right here, nobody knows what it is. On the other hand, though we don't know what the name is, I believe we can understand what the name means. I think we can understand what the name means. Verse 12, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. What does this mean? When you name someone, you have authority over them, right? If you have a pet, you have a dog, you name your dog, you own that dog. The dog belongs to you. You have authority over that dog. You have a child, <laughs> name the kid, you have authority over that child. Child belongs to your family, you have power over that child. God does this in the Bible. God wrestles with Jacob, and you remember he changes his name when he wins, right? He says, Hey, let me, let me just prove to you that I own you. Your name's Jacob, but I'm gonna call you what? I'm going to call you Israel. God does the same thing to Abram, right? Abram, he says, hey, your name's Abram. I'm going to add a little bit to it. Abraham. I'm going to add, change your name. Jesus does this to Simon. I love this. Hey, Simon, follow me. Be a disciple. And he goes, okay, I will. What all does that entail? Well, it entails I own you. So your name's not Simon anymore. It's Peter. Okay, cool, right? You own me. You change my name. God changes Saul's name to Paul. God does this with people where he says, I own you. You are mine. I have authority over you. We are all dependent creatures owned by God. He has authority over us. But the man on the horse, no one brought him into the world. Nobody's named him. He's never been named by anyone. No one has power or authority over him. He is the ultimate authority. He's God himself. That's what it means. We don't know what this name is, and many people want to speculate on it. We don't know. We don't know what the name is, but we know what it means. He has a name, and nobody knows that name because nobody gave him that name because nobody's over him. He's God. He's clothed with a, a robe dipped in blood. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Some people think that this is blood from his crucifixion, Uh, I I don't think so. In fact, if you turn to Isaiah, chapter 63, remember, the majority of Revelation is quotations or allusions to Old Testament passages. That's why it's harder for us to understand it because we don't know the Old Testament that well. For the original hearers, they would have totally understood the book of Revelation. In Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 1, it says this, Who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Basra. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? They're red. Why are they red? I have trodden the wine troth alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. That's what's happening here in Revelation 19. His robe is dipped in blood. We saw this earlier in chapter 14 that Jesus is treading that vat of wine. Those grapes are being crushed and the wrath of God is being poured out. That's what's happening here. So this robe is not dipped in his own blood from the crucifixion. This robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies, the blood of those that he would destroy. This is God, very God. He is the faithful and true. He cannot lie. He is trustworthy in everything that he does. What he said he will do, he will do. And then he's God, very God. He has a name that nobody knows except for himself, meaning nobody has any higher power or authority over him. He is God, very God. But not just that, title number three, he's the word of God. He's the word of God. This is the end of verse 13, and his name is called the word of God. So the the previous verse, he has a name that nobody knows. The next verse, and the name is the word of God. What are we supposed to do with this? He has a name that nobody knows, and he has another name called the Word of God. Seems a bit confusing, and if you're at all confused by it, welcome to the Trinity, right? The reason why this is confusing at any point is because it's the Trinity. Jesus is God, and there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the Word of God. He's God, and he's the Word of God. Think about John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So just in John 1, verse 1, you have God with God, right? The Word is God, and the Word is with God. So the Word is God, the Word is with God, God is with God. So at least you have two members of the Godhead. And obviously we know the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead. Jesus is God, and then he's also God's Son, meaning he's equal to God, and he's sent out by God. The Father is the Father. He's the one who communicates, and the Son is the communicated to the world. He's the Word of God. This is an incredibly pregnant phrase, the Word of God. It's rich with meaning. Uh, We we studied the Gospel of John uh, several years ago. This is John's favorite title for Jesus. He is the Word. He is the Logos. The Greeks would have understood Logos to be a a philosophical designation in their circles of philosophy to describe a, an unseen, impersonal maker of everything. He's kind of the, the, uh, the higher power of all the world. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he is. We just know that he is. And John shows up right at the beginning of his gospel to say to a Greek-speaking world, I know who he is, just like Paul does in Acts chapter 17. I know that God. He has a name. His name is Jesus. To a Jewish hearer, to hear the word of God, to hear that phrase, he is the word of God. The word of God is absolutely imperative. It's entirely significant. You won't know anything about God unless he communicates it to you. If he doesn't speak, we're in the dark. That's why the Jews were a blessed people, because they lived among a people group who had false gods, who had idols, who they worshipped, but those gods never spoke to them. That's why you have 1 Kings chapter 18 with the prophets of Baal. They're wondering, how do we get Baal's attention? Do we dance? Do we pray? Do we cut ourselves? What do we do? Because we don't know. And Elijah says, hey, my God talks to me. He tells me exactly what I'm supposed to know. So John says, Jesus is the word of God. To a Greek mind, he is the, the maker of all things. He is the God that you've been looking for. He's not impersonal. He's very personal. To a Jewish mind... Jesus is the exact representation of everything that the Father is. He is God on display because He is fully God Himself. And for Jesus to say, I'm the Word of God, we often say, when we're talking to friends, we say, you know, such and such a truth or a reality. Take my word for it. Jesus says, I am the Word. Everything that I say is true, everything that I say is reliable. Just listen to me, believe in me, follow me. I am the Word. He's faithful and true. He has a name which nobody knows, but then he also has a name called the Word of God. He is the Word of God. And, verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following with him. So as he's coming back, there are armies coming back with him. So who makes up these armies? Well, it's two people groups, or two two creatures, believers, saints, and angels. The Bible says both are coming back with Christ believers. So we've got the Bride of Christ, we have the Tribulation Saints, we have Old Testament Saints, and then we have angels, holy angels. Back in chapter 17, go back to chapter 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. This is the Antichrist. This is everybody in the world who's fighting with the Antichrist against Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them because he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and those who are with him as he's fighting are the called the chosen and the faithful. When we studied this passage uh, months ago, we saw that call is never referred to as an angel. Chosen is never referred to as an angel. So these are saints. These are believers. Believers are with him as he returns. Also, uh, Psalm chapter two tells us that Jesus is going to come back to rule and to reign. And then that promise that he's going to rule with a, a rod of iron. That promise is also given to the church. That, that promise is given in chapter 2 verse 27 that believers will rule with him and reign with him with a rod of iron. So we're coming back to rule and to reign with him. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17, once we are raptured, the, Paul says that when we're with Jesus, we will never be separated from Jesus. We will always be with him. So wherever he's going, we're going. We are following him as a lamb follows a shepherd. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 says, you will flee by the valley of My mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord will come and all of his holy ones with him. So God is coming back. Jesus is coming back and all of his holy ones with him. And then Jude 14 that we read earlier. It was about these men that Enoch said in the seventh generation from Adam prophesying, behold, the Lord comes with many thousands of his holy ones." That's us as believers. That's us as saints. So we have not only believers coming back with Jesus, but also angels. This is Matthew 25, verse 34, or 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So we have believers and angels coming back with Christ. But notice, as all of heaven is dispatched to go with Jesus, to go back to earth, and to be a part of this battle of Armageddon that we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, it says that these armies are clothed in fine linen. Now, that fine linen refers both to believers. It was talked about uh, the, the bride of Christ receiving the fine linen. It's also talked about about angels, so it can be both. It's white and it's clean. I, I just have to stop there. We're, we're We're entering the battle of Armageddon and the clothes that we've been given to fight in this battle, it's linen. That's not what you wear when you fight a war. And that's instructive to us. There's no shields, there's no swords. They're not dressed for battle because they're not fighting this battle. The only one fighting this battle is the king. The king is fighting on behalf of all of these people. We we wear no armor. We possess no weapons. Why are we there? Why are we coming back with Jesus? We're there as an army to exalt our king and to watch him fight and to worship him when he wins. That's our job. In the last battle, he will not appear by himself, but he will triumph by himself. He does all the fighting on his own. It's David and Goliath all over again. We're just watching as our hero fights for us. The song that we sing at our church, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther, does ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, the the God of the armies of angels, from age to age is the same, and he must win this battle. He will not fail. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. A sharp sword coming out of his mouth. There's no dull point on it. This is imagery that comes from Isaiah 11, verse 4, and Isaiah 49, verse 2. It says that Jesus will, or the Messiah, will strike the earth with a rod from his mouth. The word here for sword is the word for a broad sword. It's not a little dagger. It's a very broad sword. It's coming out of his mouth. So some people think that it's only his word that he's going to slay the nations with just his word, which is possible, and I think that's a part of it, but I also think he is uh, wielding a weapon. And we see that in the end of that verse, in verse 15, that he may strike down the nations with it. And then he will rule them with a rod of iron. The word for rule is literally the word for destroy. He'll destroy all of the nations, anyone who is against him. He destroys them with a rod of iron. And then he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. That's what we'll look at next week with the treading of the winepress with the battle of Armageddon. Jesus is the faithful and true. He has a name which nobody knows. He is God, and He's the word of God. He is God's son. He's God, and he's God's son. Finally, title number four in verse 16, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. First of all, you can see that in my translation, there's uh, king of kings and lord of lords is in block letters. It's in all capitals, which means it's a quotation from something earlier. It's actually quoted from a lot of different places in the Old Testament, but also already in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, we saw that the one that's coming back with his saints is called the king of kings and the lord of lords by the way this is just very helpful for us to understand there was no question that the lamb in revelation 17 that's coming back there's no question that's jesus and then here in revelation 19 we're not told that it's jesus but there's also no question that this is jesus as well and so we clearly have jesus being called god jesus being given titles that only god is given jesus is god so He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Where is it written? A lot of people have trouble with this verse, and I totally understand it, because it looks like it's written on his robe, and it's written on his thigh. Some people get tattoos on their thighs because of this. They think Jesus is going to have tattoos, and so that's good, tattoos. I'm indifferent to that subject, so is the Bible, you're okay. Um, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name. Let me help you just a little bit. There's a a, uh, technical Greek word that's being used here. It's called an exegetical conjunction for the word and. So it's not he has a name written on his robe and he has a name written on his thigh. That's not what this word and is used for. It's used to explain the first word so if i could give it to you as literal as possible in the greek it would be this on his robe that is where his robe covers his thigh he has a name inscribed meaning that this name is written horizontally you can see it so that when jesus is sitting on a horse it moves over it's sitting across his thigh it's on the robe it's not on his thigh but it's on the robe that's covering his thigh it's inscribed there for a reason right if jesus is standing It'd be going straight down, right? It'd be vertical. We'd have to go like this to be able to read it. But when Jesus is sitting on a horse, it folds up, it sits across his thigh, and you can see King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was specifically designed so that as Jesus is coming back, you know exactly who he is because he has a billboard right there on his robe saying, here I am. I'm the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. King of Kings, Lord of lords, that's a very Hebrew construction. That's, that's a Hebrew superlative. For us, if we want to say something's the best, we just put EST at the end of it, right? You know, Luke is cool, Hannah's the coolest, right? If we want to say that something's the best, we just put EST. If you want to say something's the best in a Hebrew mindset, you put it in this construction, king of kings, lord of lords, the best of whatever category we're talking about. You know this in the Bible. Solomon wrote a song. And it's a song, by the way, and I love this. It's a song that's all about love, romance, marriage, physical intimacy in marriage. And Solomon says that that song, the Bible says that that song is called the Song of Songs, the best song that's ever been written. It's the best song of all songs, and it's a song all about love and romance and enjoyment in marriage. Song of songs, king of kings, lord of lords, the best of whatever category it is we're talking about. So Jesus is the best king of all kings, the only king over all of these lesser kings, the lord and master over everyone. It's very interesting. You remember Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and he took him up to a, a mountain, and he said, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you every kingdom that there is in the world. I'll give you all of the kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me. Remember, Jesus didn't do that because that wasn't the way to get the kingdom. That wasn't the way to rule and to reign. If he had done that, he wouldn't be king of kings. He'd be bowing down to Satan, and Satan would be the king of kings. And so Jesus has to go to the cross before he can get the crown. And he does. He goes to the cross, and now he wears the crown, literally wears the crowns. Many diadems on his head. He is wearing every crown to say I'm king over all of it. He is king over the universe. This is the only way that he could rightly inherit the kingdom and reign and rule as a righteous king over all things. And so he does. Four titles. What are we to make of these four titles? How does Jesus coming back and seeing these four titles of our savior? How does that inform our lives today? Well, number one, faithful and true means that we can trust Jesus. He said he's going to return, and he's going to. It may seem like it's a long way off. He's coming back. Brothers and sisters, he's coming back. You can trust him. Remember he said this, uh, the angel said it on his behalf. When he rose from the dead, he's out of the tomb. The women go, they see the tomb. They see the angels at the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. They look inside, and the angels say, Who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, he's not here because he's risen. What? Just as he said. You can trust him. You can trust Jesus. In the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, writing about the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, says... Uh, for all of them, in accordance with the scriptures. He died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised to newness of life in accordance with the scriptures. He's faithful and true. He's trustworthy. I think that that, one of the lenses that you should have as you read the Bible, is you should be looking for the trustworthiness of God on display. Read through the Bible and just say, God, where are you proving yourself trustworthy? Where are you making a promise, and then it looks like that promise will never come to pass? And then you bring it, you make it happen. The Bible is filled with story after story, account after account of Jesus making an impossible situation turn out to fulfill a promise that He had made. Deuteronomy seven verse nine and Hebrews ten verse twenty three says that He will make good on His promises. He will fulfill His word. He's faithful. First Corinthians chapter. 10 verse 13, he's faithful to help us in our temptations. He's faithful to protect us from Satan, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. He's faithful to us in that he will never leave us or forsake us, 2 Timothy 2.13. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, nine. Titus 1 verse 2 and Numbers 23.19 say, we have a God who cannot lie it's impossible for god to lie he's faithful and true what he said he will do number two he's god he's god he has a name that nobody knows except himself he is god we should worship him as god you remember the angel last week he says stop worshiping me don't bow down at my feet worship god that means worship christ worship the father son holy spirit worship him number three he's the word of god He's the Word of God. He is God, and he's the Word of God. He's the Son of God. This helps us understand the Trinity, but it also helps us understand the beauty of who Christ is. Uh, Hebrews 1 opens up with the, uh, the phrase that he is the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God sounds like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God believes, what he teaches, what he says about himself, just look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of everything that God is, because he is God. And finally, number four, he's the king. He's the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king over all things. And there's a vindication here in this paragraph of our savior. You remember the last time that most people saw him, they saw him slaughtered on a cross. That doesn't look like a king but here we have a king returning and reigning and ruling. He's coming on a white horse. The first time he rode into Jerusalem, it was on a donkey. And literally, Zechariah 9, verse 9, prophesied that it was not even a donkey, it was a baby donkey. And the Gospels, the synoptics tell us that it was a baby donkey. It was the the colt, the foal of a donkey. Think of how ridiculous that must have looked. I am king, everybody. And then I'm just riding on this tiny little baby horse. Maybe my sandals are even kind of touching the ground as I'm riding. Everybody's looking and going, who's that guy? I mean, he claims to be Messiah, so Hosanna, awesome. But really, like, this is what we're waiting for. Riding on a white horse, king over all. One author says it this way, the first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a servant. The next time he will come as the sovereign king. The first time Jesus came, he came as one obeying. The next time he will come as one commanding first time Jesus came, he came alone to live with a Jewish couple in a small, obscure town. The next time, he will come with all of his saints and all of his holy angels to take over the whole world. The first time Jesus came, he came in humility. The next time, he will come in glorious majesty and splendor. The first time Jesus came, he came to seek and to save the lost. And the next time, he will come to judge and sentence the lost. Or, to put the contrast in terms of our text, the first time Jesus came, he came as a sower. This is in the book of Matthew. Next time he will come as the reaper. He came in grace and he will come again in wrath. He is king over all. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. We'll end our time here. We sing so many songs about the second coming of Christ. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back. As a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, and even so it is well with my soul. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. All these songs are resounding with joy at the second coming of Christ. And so the question is, are you longing for this? Listen to the way that it's described in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. Make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. That's the plea. Rend the heavens. Come back. Why? So many reasons, but Psalm chapter 2 tells us one of the reasons why we are longing for the return of Christ is the vindication of his name as he rules and he reigns over the earth. Verse 8. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. That's the Father speaking to the Son The one who has been installed, verse 6, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's exactly what's going to happen. Zion, the holy mountain, where Jerusalem is, Jesus is going to descend on the Mount of Olives and then ride into Jerusalem, installed forever. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will destroy them and shatter them like earthenware. What what are we to do with this? Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling, with fear. Do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son. Show affection for the Son. Love the Son so that he might not be angry with you and you perish in the way because his wrath will soon be kindled. It would be very easy if we stop there to go, man, this just seems like an angry God. But the end of this chapter tells us that he's not. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. He is waiting and waiting and waiting. He is holding back judgment. He is holding back wrath because he loves you. He does not desire for any to perish, but that the wicked would repent and come to saving faith in Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, then all you are doing is sitting in front of a dam of God's wrath that's about to be unleashed on your soul. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve judgment. And unless you take refuge in Christ, who bore your judgment on your behalf, then you will bear the judgment yourself. And we've seen it time and time again in Revelation. It's an eternal judgment. It's a conscious judgment. It's a tormenting judgment. Pay homage to the Son. Kiss the Son. Worship Him now so that you don't get the anger later. Take refuge in Him now before it's too late. Our King is coming. Do you love Him? Do you long for him? Do you worship him? Can you say here this morning that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for me and therefore I trust in him? I'm not good enough to get to heaven on my own. I'm not a good enough person to get to God on my own. I am a flawed sinner condemned because of my sin to punishment. And Jesus took that punishment. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as refuge, as one who you long to see again, don't leave. Lunch can wait. Please talk with one of us because we would love for you to know Christ, for you to kiss the Son, to worship Him, to love Him with all of your affections. And if you do that, you're going to long for the return of the King. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word that is so clear. It teaches us in so many different ways. But here this morning, it instructs our hearts concerning the second coming. God, we long for that day. Haste the day when our faith will be sight. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We already sung it. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Take us home at the rapture. Let us enjoy being in heaven with you. And then let us come back at the second coming to rule and to reign in righteousness with our King. Father, may we Kiss the Son now. May we love him more than we love anything in this world. Help us to do that even as we sing. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.